0: From WBEZ Chicago and
1: PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week, we're exploring the life and career of Janis Joplin. We'll talk with author Holly George-Warren about Janice's impact and the person behind the facade of the tortured blues singer.
2: She definitely had this lust for life and joyousness, too, that I think has gotten lost in the other persona that we know so well. We'll
1: also review new albums from Kanye West and Neil Young with Crazy Horse. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
3: Cry, oh, honey, oh lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions and today we'll be doing a deep dive into the life and legacy of Janis Joplin. But first, some new music.
1: That is every hour from the new Kanye West album, Jesus is King. Uh, No introduction necessary for Kanye West, I assume, for most of our listeners. Probably not. Even if you haven't heard a note of Kanye's music, you probably heard one of his (laughs) more recent pronouncements being bandied about on all sorts of talk radio shows. Yeah, God help you if you're on Twitter. Late night television, yes, Twitter, social media, you name it. Uh, Lest we forget... He started his career with five uh, pretty terrific records. I would say at least two masterpieces in that Mm -hmm. uh, run from the college dropout through My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy in 2010, Uh, lately more famous or infamous for the controversies in which he finds himself consistently embroiled, whether he's feuding with Taylor Swift, questioning the origins and impact of slavery, or uh, loudly proclaiming as a hero an American president who has been roundly criticized for racist comments and policies now he's proclaiming that he's born again, Jim, uh, in the Christian faith. He has said he will no longer make secular music. He has given us his first gospel rap album, Jesus is King. Here's a track from it, and then we're going to review it. It's called Selah from Kanye West on Sound Opinions.
0: God is king, we the soldiers. Ultra beam out the solar. When I get to heaven's gates,
3: I ain't got to peek over. Keeping perfect composure when I scream at the chauffeur. I ain't mean I'm just focused, I ain't mean I'm just focused Put a lean out slower, got us clean out of soda Before the flood people judge. they did the same thing to Noah Everybody wanted Yandy, that Jesus Christ did the laundry They say that we start on Monday, but the strong start on Sunday Won't be in bondage to any man, John 8:33. We did the descendants of Abraham, yeah you should be made free John 8
0: Sailor from Kanye West's new album "Jesus Is King." Greg, you said uh, two masterpieces. I think all five. Well, of yeah, the first, I would uh, say releases. really,
1: really good or
0: masterpieces. Yeah. Really, uh, you know, just terrific records uh, that that stretch the boundaries of what hip hop is and can be. That having been said, he's had a difficult stretch for some time. I compare him to what John Lennon did. For stretching the boundaries of rock and roll, Kanye West, and this is not hyperbole, has done for hip-hop. A lot of people still doubt that, but the evidence is in those records. Lennon had a tough period, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let me point you to 1970 and the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band record. He's doing primal scream therapy. He's all confused about his superstardom. All right, Kanye has a lot of... Stuff that you have got to tune out if you can tune out the public persona, the hype, and everything else. This album is his first great one since the last two uh, that were really amazing. My Dark Twisted Fantasy and 808s and Heartbreak. Musically, what he's doing here to incorporate hip-hop and and singing trepidatiously, uh, humor as well as heartfelt religious conviction. I will not question his new faith when he sings about the gospel is a hard road to follow, but it's saving him. I believe him. When he sings about the prosperity gospel, that God wants uh, certain people to be rich, uh, I have a little more trouble with that, okay? Mm. But I think for the most part, this is a really great album and is best
1: uh, in a very long time, Well, I would say uh, two things. Uh, One, people are making a big deal about being born again, right? But I think he's had religious references in his music since the
0: beginning. I meant to say that. Jesus Walks is one of the best mergers of gospel and popular music ever.
1: You go back to the early part of his career with that song, Ultralight Beam, later on, Father Stretch My Hands, part one, The Life of Pablo was named after the prophet Paul, the biblical figure who had the religious conversion on the road to Damascus. This is Kanye's Road to Damascus album. He you know grew more up in so than church. that record. Yeah. You know, as you said, he's extremely sincere. I think I believe very earnest in the way he's using some of these gospel signifiers. You know the the gospel choirs that are on this uh, record, the churchy keyboard chords. Uh, there's also gospel vocalist Fred Hammond uh, uh, guesting on this record.
0: I, have,
1: I don't think it's a great Kanye record. I think it's a half-finished Kanye record. The You know, the track where he samples that track from the whole truth. Yeah. Can You Lose by Following God?
0: Tell me what your life like, turn it down a bright light. Driving with my dad and he told me it ain't Christ
1: like That to me is in many ways classic Kanye. The way he would use those old
0: Dusty samples. Yeah. The idea of uh, having two guests on Use This Gospel clips... Uh, you know, wonderful uh, cutting-edge rappers, and Kenny G. I never thought I would say this, sentence, Greg. I like the Kenny G sax solo.
1: I don't know if I can go that far, uh, but the idea of, of merging clips and Kenny G <laughs> on the same track, <laughs> that is only only Kanye only could probably Kanye, come up yeah. with that, that kind of an idea. But th- th- there's a lot of tracks on here that feel slapdash, unfinished, uh, rushed. 12 songs in 27 minutes. He was working with it up until the end. Where is the work of art like My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, a fully formed, lush, beautifully uh, constructed masterpiece of an record? perfect He's not in that mode anymore. He seems to be putting out these projects kind of in a blur of inspiration and saying, here it is. Like Lennon, Two Virgins, Plastic Ono Band. Uh, I'm
0: um, um, I'm not... Thinking about Beatles' perfection. I'm letting yeah. it blur. You know, I'm not saying this record is of a par with those first five masterpieces.
1: It's the best he's given us in a while. He's on the road to Damascus, but he, <laughs> he hasn't reached <laughs> Damascus yet. That's well, all hallelujah. I, can say, you know? I hope he gets there. Nothing yeah.
3: doesn't bothers
0: me because I'm so happy. I look like it does, but that means nothing. I got a face that gets me in trouble. I got a face. That does its damage. But I'm rescued now, and this is all in my
3: head. I gotta win somehow and lose this mind instead. It's always working on finding my weakness. How I was made to feel and can't forget.
1: I can't forget.
0: That is Help Me Lose My Mind, a track from the new album by Neil Young, and Crazy Horse Colorado. Greg, uh, for any Neil Young fan, and really, if you like rock and roll over the last half century, you can't not be a Neil Young fan uh, when when you hear that he is back with Crazy Horse. Albeit a slightly rejiggered Crazy Horse, Frank Poncho San Pedro has retired in his place. No slouch is Nils Lofgren and one of the all-time best rhythm sections in history, Billy Talbot and Ralph Molina. Uh, We haven't had a Neil Young album with Crazy Horse since 2012, Psychedelic Pill. You know, who is Neil Young? I mean, he comes out of Canada as a preteen, had two passions, garage rock and playing folk clubs where he's meeting people like Joni Mitchell, the early Buffalo Springfield records, the birth of a solo career in 1969 that is now 39 albums deep, Uh, in between forays with the likes of uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You know, Neil has has got a Neil sound, but he's also never stopped experimenting, whether it's with big blues band or uh, electronic music, uh, you never know what you're going to get from Neil Young. But when he says, I'm back with Crazy Horse, people have a certain expectation. I don't think we need more introduction. Let's dive into playing a track. We'll come back and give our opinions as lifelong Neil Young fans on Colorado. This is called Shut It Down on Sound Opinions.
4: Shut the whole system down.
3: Have to
0: shut the whole system down.
3: People trying to save this earth from an ugly death. shut the whole system down. People trying to live working in a world to meet that threat. Have to shut the whole system down. All around the planet, there's a blindness that just can't...
1: That is Shut It Down from Neil Young with Crazy Horse. Reunited yet again. Uh, Neil keeps returning to the well of Crazy Horse, which seems bottomless. Um, yes. You know, I, I compare it to a big slab of stone, and they're just carving away the same <laughs> yeah. song over and over yeah. again, and it's it's a great song. It's a great song. You know, you get that 13 minutes of uh, She Showed Me Love, and it's, uh, it's, you know, that's what people pay their money for. They yep. want to see that. Interplay. No, You can tell within a couple of notes of that craggy guitar that mm-hmm. this is Neil Young with that band. Uh, they've got to sound like no other. They're like a genre unto themselves. That said, Neil's been making political r- music for a long time. Yes. He has never made more... Uh, Obvious political music than he has right here in these l- most recent spate of albums. You know, he's really worried about the planet dying. I mean, that's yep. been a concern from day one. Go go back to after the gold rush. He's a hippie, you know, he's man. been talking about this he's stuff. He's a hippie. In in a way that was really inventive here, it's it's pretty, you know, to the point where some of these lyrics are downright... Cheesy. I saw Mother Nature <laughs> pushing Earth in a baby carriage. Yeah. What about the animals? What about the birds and bees?
0: We saw the polar bear. She floated on a piece of ice from another time.
3: On a piece of ice from another time.
1: Thank you for this observational, uh, you know prose that you're giving us here, Neil, but these, these seem like manifestos that he should be reading from uh, the street corner, shouting from the street corner. He's the, as he says in one song, I'm the cranky old white guy, you know, yeah, shouting at people. Yeah, I'm an people, old white man. You know, and, and okay, I get that, that, that's part of the appeal here. He doesn't care what you think. This is what I feel. And that there's, there, there is something to be said for Neil Young expressing himself so transparently. Uh, but I, I live for those guitar jams. I live for a song like, you know, Shut It Down. Mm-hmm. I live for the beauty of a song like I Do, where he says, Why do I still believe in you? Why do I believe in you? Who is he addressing? A lover? God? You know somebody that let him down. Obviously, there's a lot of lot of things on this planet that uh, that concern
0: him, like the classic "Rust Never Sleeps." There yeah. is a mix of acoustic, quiet yeah. Neil, and full on, full throttle, crazy horse.
1: And I sort of give this a, a mixed review, Jim, in in that sense. It's still it's still great to see this band back together again. It's not the greatest Neil Young with Crazy Horse record, but it's a pretty good one. Yeah, you know, look, he is
0: cranky old Uncle Neil. Yeah. But when he's talking about himself being an old white man. He is wondering why his peers have sold this planet down the river, why the world is melting and yeah. the birds and the bees are both in peril. Let's not forget he has a serious point when the honeybees die, you know, like the entire ecosystem is is screwed, um, you know, recorded 11 days uh, pretty much live in the Rocky Mountains. I, you know, I'm just glad to hear Neil fired up. He's found Love again in his life, and I think the love songs, uh, I Do in particular, are really beautiful. Uh, You know, he had a brush with uh, an aneurysm and and could have been dead. You know, is this ranking in the top 10, 15 Neil Young albums? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, but— You know, any Neil Young fan knows that the ultimate road trip album of all time is the three album decade (laughs) best of, right? right? If you got Decade and you got Russ Never Sleeps, you have him up until about 1980. I maintain that of what he's given us lately, We could pick two or three or four songs from Colorado that would stand with the one or two or three others from each of the albums he's given us in the last 20 years and have another great decade. Yeah. As he sang many, many decades ago, long may he run. I'm glad the world has Neil Young still. But we want to hear from you. What do you think of the new music from Kanye and Neil Young and Crazy Horse? Call 888-859-1800 and leave a message with your thoughts and why. Or join the conversation with us on Facebook or Twitter. Coming up, we explore the life and musical impact of the legendary Janis Joplin. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
3: You might say that...
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And that's a little bit of "Piece of My Heart by Big Brother and The Holding Company, sung by the great Janis Joplin. It's been over 50 years since Joplin first shocked the music world with a, a soulful voice. I, soulful almost doesn't do that voice justice. No, there's no other voice that like that. energetic stage present and unabashed sense of self. You're absolutely
0: right, Greg. And uh, unfortunately... A lot about Janice's life has been sensationalized because of her seemingly meteoric rise to fame and that tragic death at the age of 27, that number, from a drug overdose. Uh, beyond that carefree blues persona was an intellectual, hardworking, and intentional artist. Today, we're going to talk to music journalist Holly George Warren, a friend of ours, a respected peer, an award-winning author of 16 books, the latest of which is Janice, Her Life and Music, It's a great read. It's full of letters, documents, and interviews that help us get to the core of who Janis Joplin really was. Holly, welcome to Sound Opinions.
2: Well, I am so thrilled to be here because I love your show.
0: You know, we were excited reading that this book was coming down the pike and uh, even more excited having read it now. It's a really great human story and a piece of musical history. So, Holly, really basic for many younger listeners I think don't even know the biography. Tell us who Janice was, growing up, never fitting in.
2: Janice was always on a quest to actualize her inner drive which early on I had no idea she really wanted to be an artist a painter because she could sing but she was singing this pretty soprano in the church choir and she thought that was real squaresville you know Mm -hmm. so uh, (laughs) by the time she was a teenager in Port Arthur Texas which was a very segregated town on the Gulf Coast like a boom town for the oil business her father was an executive in an oil refinery. He encouraged her, though, to explore things outside of her life in Texas, and he kind of created a monster, her dad. So she was an avid reader. And of course, she discovered on the road, the year it came out, the famous Kerouac call to the road which set her on her path and then the next big thing that happened to her was discovering some 78s by Lead Belly by Bessie Smith and other blues artists and that just blew her mind. That's when she discovered her real voice, which was not the little sweet church singing soprano voice.
0: Mm, yeah, You know, it's so fascinating to me, both the fascination with the beats, Kerouac in particular, and a young woman loving the black blues musicians. You know, myriad are the stories of young men emulating the on-the-road uh, ideal, crossing the color line and going to clubs where there are just black audiences you know, for a young woman to be doing that in a town like Port Arthur, I mean, it really was revolutionary, wasn't it?
2: It certainly was. And I mean, even just sneaking off and going to New Orleans with a carload of white boys was uh, <laughs> made her become really just a persona non grata in her hometown. No one could believe that this girl just wanted to go and hear music. And have a few beers, of course, too, but that she didn't have other ulterior motives. She got this really bad reputation, but she really did her homework, and by the time she landed in Austin, Texas in 1962 and connected with this little hillbilly bluegrass band called the Waller Creek Boys, she was a walking encyclopedia of the blues.
1: was a little bit of Janice and the Waller Creek Boys singing St. James Infirmary in Austin. Now before becoming a uh, musical superstar Janice moved around a lot. There was uh, Port Arthur in Texas then Austin then San Francisco New York City and then back again. Now Holly when Janice moved to Austin Texas in 62 what was it like there?
2: Well it was still quite conservative but was the most free in town in texas at the time there was a group of people that she met up with that lived in this beat up old apartment building that had been a barracks during world war ii and these were people that wanted to be beats they were painters there were musicians freethinkers and in fact years later it came to be known that it had been under surveillance Hmm. there were student narcs and then the police and i think even the fbi had the place under surveillance and had made this list of the people that lived there hung out there as being Under suspicion for activities like subversives, um, yes, homosexuality, promiscuousness, drug abuse, drug dealing, all this kind of thing. Good
0: times.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What (laughs) good.
0: That is some of Janis Joplin's first ever recorded song, one she wrote called, prophetically, What Good Can Drink and Do? She performed it at a friend's house in Austin in the winter of 1962, but Janis didn't stay in the Texas capital for long, Holly. What motivated her to head to San Francisco?
2: Well, Austin, of course, at that point was a limited place to make it in the music business that was way before Waylon and Willie started performing there in the Armadillo World Headquarters and Doug Somm and everything. She got out there and just continued to expand her musical palette. She met some other players. She met Yorma Kalkinen and they started playing some gigs together. She first met Jerry Garcia at the time. And others on the scene out there that at that point were doing mostly blues, bluegrass, folk, stuff like that.
3: Got me rocking and reading, notes, I can't read. Love that man I love, trying to make a fool out of me. Lord, I'm leaving. And hey, I'm leaving this morning. I'm leaving, and I'm trying to find
1: a man of my own. You know, San Francisco, she tried and went couple of times before it finally stuck. Why was the third time the charm?
2: Well, she was getting some recognition, but it was very difficult to kind of keep up the momentum with no backing, no money. She was on her own. She was always very headstrong and wanting to follow her own vision. And so it got her into some trouble later on. She started drinking a lot. She ended up actually coming out to the East Coast and living in the Lower East Side the summer of 64. And at this point, she was learning how to play 12 string guitar. She's mostly making money as a pool shark in the Lower East Side, (laughs) in the bars. But sadly, she picked up speed. Speed was very predominant at that time, both in New York and San Francisco. So by 1965, when she was back in San Francisco, she started really wearing herself out, started doing tons of speed and basically pretty much wrecked her health and had to go back to Texas. There she got cleaned up, she was sober for a year, started trying to go back to school, go back to college, but she could not quit doing music. Again, she started writing songs and started playing in Houston on the same little coffeehouse scene that Towns Van Zandt was doing and Guy Clark just starting out. And then again, back in Austin, that's where she got a call from Chet Helms who had become a major part of the counterculture scene developing in San Francisco. Chet, formerly a student at UT, Janice was briefly a student there, and he really believed in her voice. And he was actually managing Big Brother and the Holding Company. And there were a few other bands that had female singers and they decided they wanted one. So he's like, bingo, we gotta get Janice out here. (laughs) very much this democratic band, she was a member of the band, and the band had already been playing since 65 and you know they did have a following for their crazy kind of freeform, garagey, what they called freak rock. She worked her way into the front, but in the beginning she only would sing lead on maybe two or three songs per set. Everybody took turns singing lead, everybody took turns doing their material, everybody wrote songs in the band pretty much
1: one thing that your book really makes clear to me is that she really wasn't a rock singer like being in front of all this electrified instrumentation and volume was a new thing for her she totally. had to adjust to that so how did she make that adjustment with uh, big brother
2: well she worked her butt off
1: <laughs> Yeah.
2: people don't realize how hard she worked at her musicianship because she created a persona with Big Brother, that she was just this feeling it, man. It's just all feelings. And, you know, that was just kind of, she stood out on stage and just fully formed as this singer, and no thought and work had gone into it. But in reality, she worked very, very hard, and she did have to adapt her vocal style to be heard over the band. So, depending on what the material was, she would alter her voice accordingly. And there were a few songs that she introduced to the band that she uh, used some of her former styles, like when they did "Down on Me," which was based on an old gospel song, for example. The music instrumentation was a bit, you know, a little bit lower, and so she was able to kind of do that more gospel-inflected style.
3: Down on.
1: Monterey. That was the breakthrough performance. The thing, again, your book points this out, she always seemed to be extremely nervous before she went on stage, almost to the point where nobody thought she could do it. She didn't think she could do it. And and somehow, she would always transform. She got on stage, the music started. Monterey was probably the greatest example of that, where she felt overwhelmed by the event, right? And then and then just killed it when she got yeah. on stage.
3: Sitting down by my window Just looking out some came along honey
2: hold on and it fell like a ball in shape. a lot of people don't realize she actually did two sets at Monterey and I think they were the only band to do two sets Big Brother the holding company because there's this whole crazy thing where they refused to be fi- allow themselves to be filmed the first set. Uh, D.A. Pennebaker, of course, the late, great filmmaker, was there um, shooting the whole concert for what was originally going to be this ABC TV movie of the week thing. And, of course, all <laughs> the San Francisco bands were like, oh, screw that, you yeah. know, the man's not getting our... <laughs> music for free because nobody was getting paid so they refused to let themselves be filmed but then of course she just blew everybody's minds with her performance well the band in general but Janice particularly and so people just went nuts like we've got to film this and Pennebaker even told the guys putting on the festival Lou Adler and John Phillips like whatever it takes we've got I've got to film her Mm -hmm. and so in fact the famous shot of mama Cass you know with her mouth wide open like wow yeah that was actually filmed during the original set which was a Saturday afternoon you know because nobody had heard of this band really outside of San Francisco so it was like an early afternoon set so they eventually convinced their manager they had a hippie manager that they had to be filmed and do, and so that they could do another set. The promoters said they could play Sunday night, so that's the one that we all know and love from mm-hmm. seeing, you know, the movie. But apparently, she was even more incredible the Saturday afternoon set. I wish mm-hmm. I could have been there.
3: Yeah. And
1: When we return, more of our conversation with author Holly George Warren about Janis Joplin. We'll talk about what Janis was like in the recording studio, as well as how her drug use began to spiral out of control. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Dirigatis. He's Greg Cott. We're passing back and forth the bottle of Southern Comfort because (laughs) we are discussing the life and career of the legendary Janis Joplin. Today we're talking with the author of Janis, her life and music, Holly George Warren. Holly, Janis recorded two albums with Big Brother and The Holding Company, the self-titled debut in 67, and a year later, Cheap Thrills. She was used to performing live, but how did she adapt to the recording studio?
2: That is another thing that I found fascinating about Janice, I don't know what you guys are do this radio show so you know what it's like being in a studio. I used to play in bands and I got to be in the studio a few times and in my opinion, it can be drudgery a lot of technical just it can be very monotonous but Janice loved being in the studio. And even their first recordings that Big Brother did for mainstream records, beginning in Chicago and in LA in 1966, she really took to it. In fact, I got to read a letter that she wrote to her parents describing in you know minute detail the whole process of doing double tracking of her vocals and everything you do in the studio. And so the same thing would happen when they got signed to Columbia and hit the big time and and started recording there she was really into the process and apparently spent more time in the studio than anybody else in Big Brother was there for the mixing got you know even got credited for it on the record and every the engineers just remembered her constantly being there and she was really part of the process too as far as you know having opinions about certain ways that uh, the song should be recorded and etc.
3: Bye-bye, baby, bye-bye. I may be seeing you all around when I change my living standard and I move up Bye-bye, baby, bye-bye.
0: You mentioned writing that letter to the parents describing the recording process. You had access to a lot of stuff like this. It seemed like even as she was becoming a role model, a goddess of this new era, right? The Woodstock era, right? You know, an empowered woman, a woman owning her sexuality, finding her own way. She was still looking for approval from this very conservative family.
2: She was, I think, because the family was very supportive to her growing up, you know, much more than she ever led on to the press when she was talking about her torture growing up in Port Arthur and all the bad things about it.
1: Were you not uh, surrounded by friends in high school?
2: They laughed me out of class, out of town, and out of the state. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But they weren't so happy when she started what they considered going out of bounds. And of course, her drug use and alcoholism was frightening, of course, as it would be to any parent but she still I, I think it was a combination of that they actually really gave her the confidence to strive to be different to be unique to really achieve and that she just felt that she wanted to prove to them that she did succeed as a unique uh, talented individual and you know she she loved her parents she loved her siblings and that bond never really broke but as they became more disapproving of her rock star lifestyle and everything she really sought to kind of find substitute mom and dad and siblings among her friends and you know people like albert grossman the famous manager that she got who was dylan's manager but she still kept wanting to keep those ties with them and she kept trying to win them over you Mm -hmm. know just the way she Uh, tried to win over fans. Everyone I know that saw her live that I talked to could still never forget the way that on stage she just gave and gave and gave and gave of herself as a performer until you just felt connected to her. And uh, I think a lot of young women that saw her felt that she was finally giving voice to things that they felt and thought. And those kind of ties and those winnings over of fans i think she was always still trying to do with her family and even people back in port arthur texas
3: women to be in uh, the music business give up more than you'd ever know she's got kids she gave up any woman gives up home life an old man, probably, because you're so crazy on planes and going, and you never yeah. find them again. You give up a, a, a home and friends, any constant in the world except music. That's the only thing you got, man. After you boil it down, the only thing you got left in the world is that music, man. And so, for a woman to sing, she really needs to or wants to. A man can do it as a gig. Because he
1: knows he can get laid tonight. Yeah, her choice of material, there was a mix of covers and originals that she was starting to write as well. The second Big Brother in the Holding Company album, Cheap Thrills, she does this amazing cover of Big Mama Thornton, Paul, and Shane. And then you've got this amazing reworking of Summertime, mm. the George Gershwin piece from what? Porgy and Bess, right? Yes. Um, I mean, just stunning reinterpretations of these songs. a sense of how that was forged, you know, that you go from this kind of relatively straightforward Broadway tune into something as stunning as as what she made it.
2: Well, again, I think she loved listening to records, and she did her research, and I think she got inspired by other artists' interpretations, and then those inspirations filtered through her own sensibility, her own vocal style, and that's what we get. So she was a huge Nina Simone fan, for example. Mm. And so I believe both Summertime and then on her first solo album, I Got Them Cosmic Blues Again, Mama, her version of Little Girl Blue, I think were both very much inspired by Nina Simone. Sit there
3: And count your fingers What can you do?
1: breakup with Big Brother was not pretty, I would imagine. Big label involved in Columbia Records, Clive Davis, a controversial figure in the history of contemporary yes. music. So how did that, all that go down? And, and, and was Janice going out as a solo artist for the third album? Was she confident or did she feel like this was the right thing for her career? What was her mindset going into making a record without that Big Brother and the Holding Company umbrella?
2: Well, to begin with, I mean, it's kind of part of a pattern with her in that she was always musically restless and just, you know, she had tried different kinds of music and would do it for a while and then she would want to try a different, you know, sort of music, etc. They were pretty much into doing what they did and weren't really interested in expanding their sound and she really wanted to go off into a different direction. She was madly in love with the music of Otis Redding. I mean, she was obsessed with his music. She loved the whole Stax Volt sound. And she really wanted to go more in that direction. The band was not interested. And then also, like I said, they really did start out as a democracy. Even trying to cut that first album for Columbia, they had a lot of difficulties in the studio. Some critics started denigrating the band's ability. And of course, Janice was getting so much attention, so much focus. So obviously, as we all know, Know about rock and roll bands when that starts happening, uh, there's you know tensions and they build up, etc. So, yeah, so that was starting to happen, and there was fighting amongst the band members, not just between Janice and the band members, but among each other as well. So, things started kind of crumbling sadly. And Albert Grossman, pretty much, I think, pretty much from the beginning, yes, her manager encouraged her to. Find more uh, professional type players to back her up. And so that's kind of what happened and why she left the band.
0: How much of her vision do you think she was able to get across on the solo records?
2: I think quite a lot. Her solo album, the first one that she did, kind of shows the diversity of her musical taste, the different styles of material that are on that record. She wrote a kind of a Bessie Smith kind of song for the record called One Good Man. <laughs> And she did Maybe, a girl group song that she loved as a teenager in Port Arthur. Maybe,
3: whoa, whoa, whoa. if I could ever hold your little
2: hand. My favorite song, I guess, on the record is Cosmic Blues. It just stabs me in the heart. Her voice is just more nuanced than, Mm -hmm. you know, in the Big Brother era and the backing is gorgeous and it's also kind of her philosophy of life, Mm -hmm. you know, she had this whole idea about the cosmic blues that, which she partially, you know, got from her father, I think, just no matter how hard you work and, you know, how much you strive for happiness in the end you're still going to be miserable and alone and no one's ever going to be happy i mean it was a pretty punk rock nihilistic way of thinking Time keeps moving.
1: I uh, think, you know, because you mentioned that, uh, that little philosophy that her father passed down to her and made a huge impression on her, it's obviously distilled into cosmic blues. Do you think it was almost like a self-fulfilling thing where she felt like, okay, I'm just going to push it as far as I can? You know, I'm talking about the excess, the drugs, the drink, the, but also the just crazy driving that she would do, all these kind of death-defying lifestyle moments Was it in any way sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy for her? Like, okay, I'm going to go out anyway. I might as well go out in a blaze of glory kind of thing?
2: Well, I mean, it's nature, nurture. It's hard to decipher those kind of things. I mean, even as a kid, she was very rambunctious and tomboyish. She loved to climb trees. She fell out of a tree and broke her arm. And she had this kind of fearlessness that she would just push herself to go beyond fear. And unfortunately, you know drugs and alcohol were part of that. Although some drugs, she, I mean, she tried pretty much everything, but she never really liked the psychedelics very much. She said it made her think too much. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I think part of her problem was that she did think a lot. She was very introspective. And when you think a lot, you know, there can be some troubling thoughts. And so to try to erase those, she did turn to various intoxicants that could just help her forget about those cosmic blues, Mm -hmm. you know. And then I've interviewed a lot of musicians over the years, and so many of them talked about how when they got off stage, they were just so pumping, you know, on all cylinders, and it's such a high, and it's just the adrenaline, everything. And that the only way to kind of chill and to kind of come down from all that is, hey, to use um, some sort of chemical to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was part of it, too.
3: Do oh, you,
0: you think she was ever really happy, Ollie?
2: Oh, yeah. She was so happy. And I think, again, she did develop this suffering blues mama persona. And I think Bob Newworth actually said if you wear the mask long enough, you become mm. the mask. Mm-hmm. She definitely had that tendency, but so many people that I spoke to, including bandmates, really good friends, etc., just talked about she was also this totally fun-loving woman with this incredible sense of humor. She definitely had this lust for life and joyousness, too, that I think has gotten lost in the other persona that we know so well.
0: And that happens to so many musicians, especially in the blues idiom, right? Instead of realizing that this is, you you are singing the blues to purge yourself of these bad feelings, Mm. not to wallow in them. Right. You know, there's a joy in so much of her music, even the sad stuff.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. And she was kind of one of those never met a stranger types, too. I mean, there's so many stories of her just hanging out in the Golden Gate Park and making friends with people. And she, you know, she loved animals. She was super happy with her dogs and... She loved going out and doing crazy things. She for heaven's sakes, can you imagine, you know, Taylor Swift hitchhiking through Brazil? <laughs> she was like the biggest rock star in the country and she was hanging out in Brazil yeah. hitchhiking in nineteen seventy after going yeah. down there for a carnival. It's just crazy. Busted flat in Ben
3: Rouge, waiting for a train. And I was feeling near faded as magic. jeans. Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained and rode us all the way to New Orleans.
0: I want to talk about uh, Janice's second solo album, Pearl, and the song Me and Bobby McGee in particular. I love the story you tell in the book about the first time she performed that song live.
2: Oh, the one about when she did it in Nashville, or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She like, oh, yeah, learns yeah. it,
0: goes on stage, and does, does it. it.
2: Yeah, she, it's amazing. She learned that song from, again, Bob Newworth, who was just the coolest guy in rock and roll, if you ask me. You know, Dylan's aide-de-camp, and then he became uh, Janice's as well. And he had learned the song from Gordon Lightfoot, I think it was, who had learned it from hearing a, a Chris Christopherson demo or something and he was the day he, he heard him sing it he learned it on guitar and wrote down the lyrics and he re- went over was meeting up with Janice at the Chelsea Hotel that night taught her the song she immediately just fell madly in love with the song learned it started playing it on guitar and yeah sure soon soon she you know just pulled it out of her hat when they were playing in Nashville and said Hey, y'all, you know, here's here's a song written by a guy that lives here in Nashville. And, of course, everybody went nuts over it.
3: Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose Nothing, that's all that Bobby left me But a feeling good was easy loud when he sang the blues a hey, feeling good was good enough for me mm-hmm. Good enough for me and my Bobby
0: So she dies at 27, heroin overdose. What do you think, Holly, is uh, the lasting legacy of Janice Chaplin today?
2: Oh, wow. There's so many. (laughs) So many legacies. I mean, you could just see her as such a pioneer musically, of course. I mean, there's a whole lineage of people, I think, that were inspired by her vocal attack, the way she even how the microphone on stage. I mean, Robert Plant has said as much about Led Zeppelin came to the States and he got to interface with Janice a few times and this whole kind of hard rock vocal style from her Big Brother days, I think. As far as her just being a groundbreaking artist, really pushing to do things her way and following her musical heart instead of just sticking with whatever was successful, that kind of thing. And of course, she didn't hide her lifestyle choices. She was definitely ahead of the curve as far as things like gender and sexuality. And she also proved that women who were really not, at that time, very much a focal point in rock and roll on stage, she proved that she's better than any guy live on stage.
0: We've been talking to Holly George Warren, author of Janice, great biography of Janis Joplin. You know we love you, Holly. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you
2: guys so much.
0: That wraps up our discussion on Janis Joplin, and now we want to hear from you. What is your favorite Janis Joplin song? What artists do you think were most influenced by her and why? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message or join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, we're going to play some of our favorite songs of all time about the radio.
0: You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things or join us on our Facebook group. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill.
1: sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800.
3: New messages.
4: Hi, I'm Bob calling from Croton, New York about your Halloween episode and great show. Halloween has a storied history in rock and it can be hard to separate costumes from shtick, from theatrics, from branding. For example, I'm thinking back to the punk and new wave eras. Devo had their goofy planters on their heads. Of course, David Byrne had his large square suit during the Stop Making Sense concerts. The Ramones always wore leather jackets. Now, was that a costume or branding? I once saw them at a concert on a hot summer day in Central Park. It must have been 90 degrees out, yet they still had those black leather jackets on. Whatever you call it, it is commitment. Thanks. Hi, guys. This is Mark in Nashville. I uh, just listened to your episode about bands in costume, and I wanted to suggest the Liverpool Band Clinic. I guess this counts their costume. They wear surgical masks when they perform live. They're also often wearing surgical scrubs or sometimes other outfits like Hawaiian shirts or uh safety vests or uh, three-piece suits. It's creepy, but it's also a little goofy, uh, which perfectly matches their music and is actually kind of perfect for this time of year. No. No. No, 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 they like the background music to a, a mad professor's lab or a haunted asylum or a uh, dysfunctional theme park or something like that so give them a listen great show thanks as always bye hi my
3: name is bob i'm calling from ellington florida and one of my favorite costume bands is red knuckles and the trailblazers who are the alter ego to the
4: hot rise bluegrass band
3: and I tried to get to sleep but the band kept it playing, and I underneath I, and I, turned, I' tried to get to sleep but the band kept it playing, and I underneath honky-tonk. and hot rise during their performance they say hey folks we're going to take a break and these guys travel with us and drive the bus gonna come out and do some uh, honky tonk and western swing music and the boys would run off stage change into western style suits and come back out with a lap steel and play a western swing and it was quite entertaining have big
4: sunglasses on red knuckles and the trailblazers bluegrass festivals hated it but their fans loved it that's all thanks hey guys this
3: is julian from andersonville chicago I uh, love you guys' show just uh bands and costumes Went to go see uh, one of my favorite bands named Dumfries McGee one time, and one of the opening acts at this festival, is a band called Here Come the Mummies. I don't use this lately, but they blew my mind. I like saying those words, but they really did. Uh, there's two myths about this band. that They are award-winning musicians that uh, play anonymously stress as mummies to uh, avoid record label disputes, or that they are actual 3,000 year old mummies playing funk from beyond the grave. I love you guys' work, so thank you very much for everything. Hope you guys are doing well.
4: Hey y'all, it's me, Mike, from New York City. There's a young lady rapper, hip hop artist from Brooklyn, uh, named Lakele 47 and she always wears a bandana mask over her face. Man, she's got just such great infectious beats. Such a good, good artist. Great, smart, clever lyrics. Sweet voice.
3: So what I got an attitude. Uh, check got attitude. So what I got an attitude. Uh, check a I don't sleep.
4: I don't check her out. And I think you should do a whole uh, show, frankly, on uh, female hip-hop artists because I really think that's where it's at. Thanks, guys. Keep it up.